Minag is the least severe of the three categories. And Minag is something that developed through, literally the word Minhag comes from the term Noheg, um, to behave. So, as you say a child, you're not behaving well. So, Minhag is a custom that is developed over the process of time. So, there's not necessarily in the fact that there is a... Um, that this was actually decided that from this point onwards, this is what we're going to do. But it's something that largely developed out of practice rather than institutions. So these customs are all in completely different. So by Torah law and rabbinic law, almost all the Jewish world is exactly on the same page. Ashkenazi, Sfaradim, Hasidim, Misnagdim, we're all pretty much on the same page. But once you go down to now rabbinic law, so once you go to customs, so now everybody has their own thing. So you have you have the Ashkenazim and Sephardim is custom. Then within the Ashkenazi world, you have Hasidim and non-Hasidim. And then within the non-Hasidim, then you have Yekas and Litvaks and Hungarians and all these other different things. So all of these come down is the Minhag is the thing that is just how we've developed it. It's no Torah law, it's just what we do it. And the reason that the Minhag develops is usually because it's a nice idea that brings some, uh, some value um, it, it, it just it's, it shows a certain level of sensitivity. It's a beautiful idea. It, it, bar, it, 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 it uh, taps in with certain values that we have. Or um, because of a particular time and a particular place, we have certain restrictions because we're concerned. So, for example, some of the customs that have developed. So, so pizza bread, so, so matzah would be a good example. So, matzah was, you know, you put flour and water. You knead it together as quick as you can and you bake it in 18 minutes and it's done. That is matzah. And then over time, people got concerned. Maybe the water didn't get mixed completely with the flour and maybe there's some parts of the flour that have been mixed properly. And so they started putting in a whole bunch of different stringencies. So one of the stringencies that developed predominantly in the Ashkenazi world was uh, serrating, um, creating these like uh, serrations on the matzah. And the purpose of that was A, to bake it through completely and ensure that it could never come to chametz. Now, what that brought on the, on the downside of it is it became very, very brittle. So instead of a, a matzah tasting like a pizza bread, it might have been the, like the, the cracker we have today. But that is the custom. That is how, sort of how the custom has developed. Now, most of what we're going to be talking about this evening are customs. So naming a child at the bris or naming a child at the Torah reading what level of law does that fit into? Is it a Torah law? Someone says, no, it's not a Torah law. Is it a rabbinic law? So, no, it's not a rabbinic law. It's a custom. Now, why the custom? So, for sons, why does the boy get the name at the bris? So, if you're familiar with the name um, the, of the first man who gave his bris, his name was Avraham. But he wasn't called Avraham. His name was Avram. And when he has the bris, his name becomes Avraham. And so, the tradition is, is that since his name changed at the bris, so too we give names at the bris. That's it. And girls, it just became this something nice that we call the father um, or grandfather up to the Torah and we call the name. So what happens if you can't do the naming at the at the at the uh, at the Torah or at the bris? So one says, so you just give the kid a name. So what are you going to do to give the kid a name? You say, I'll call her Sharon. You know, see my mother-in-law is online, so I'll put that on there for her. So I will call her Shoshana. Okay, and that's her name. You don't need the whole process. You don't need the whole Mishabayrach and stuff. It's all very nice and good. Again, it's a custom. It's a beautiful custom. But customs, if they cannot be fulfilled during a period of time because there's no minion, so what do you do? So you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. Them. So, that's, so that's the first thing with regards to, um, with regards to naming.
The second question we're going to do is, okay, so we're going from bris. You don't need a minion for a bris, so it's all fine. You'd call the parents. I have actually have been to a number of brises where there wasn't a minion for a whole bunch of different reasons. I once went to a, a, a bris that was in a hospital. So all you need there is, uh, stands, you don't even need the father there. You just need the more help. But the, you try have, uh, we try have a minion because there's a concept of, you know, to try to do mitzvahs barabim in public, to publicize mitzvahs called barov am hadrat melech that the glory of the king is greater in with a lot of people. So you want to have a lot of people there, it just sort of highlights it. And that's why we try to get crowds for mitzvahs, for weddings, for brises, for the like. But if there isn't, there isn't. So the next part comes is a pidyon ben. So pidyon ben, now this is a unique situation because you need it to be a firstborn son. Neither the mother or the father are koanim or levi'im. And it's a natural birth. So there are very few... Uh, kids that land up having pigeon bends. I myself am a firstborn. Neither of my parents are Kwanim or Levi'im, but I was born Caesarean, so there's no pigeon ben <coughs> for, um, I didn't get a pigeon ben. But the pigeon ben usually goes, is you have a whole process. So what is the process? You get the Kohen and get the father and you get the, you get five silver coins and the father has to sort of purchase the, the child back from the coin. It's not really what happened, he redeems it. So the child has an inherent uh, form of uh, kedusha of uh, sanctity associated with him. And ordinarily before uh, the Kohanim were given the rights to be the Kohanim, the, 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 the priest, so to speak, would be the firstborn. And then after the whole Egyptian experience and the whole golden calf, the privileges to serve in the temple were given to the Kohanim. So every firstborn child is still born with an inherent holiness and that has to be redeemed. So the Kohen, so to speak, he becomes part of the Kohanic group. And then the, fa- <coughs> the father has to come and redeem the child. So what do you do if you can't get a minion? What happens if you can't do a Kohen? So it's all well and good. So we are now in, we are really going into stages now where self-isolation is a bit less. But there was a few, you know, there was time a few weeks ago where, you know, you're going to let a Kohen into your house. No one left the house and no one let anybody in. So how are you going to do a... How are you going to do this? So this goes into um, one of the areas that, um, in, in a lot of different areas of halacha, is, well, how present do you have to be? And I want to just like develop this a little bit more, is with regards to being considered part of a community. So, for example, um, the idea of making a minyan. So Minyanim have been problematic and uh, these were one of the first things to go. In fact, the shuls all closed in Sydney well before the government uh, said that they had to. Um, the government's <coughs> no mistake and the shuls closed about two weeks before the government mandated that you couldn't have social gatherings of more than 10 people. But then comes the question is what about doing like a Minyan but you're not in the same, you're not in the same room. So let's say you go out into a park and you get 10 people standing on different uh, sides of the park. Can that become a minion? Or for example, in Israel, what they were doing is they got, they had these uh, were called a minion mirpasot, which is uh, you'd get 10 people standing on the balconies and they're all sort of uh, answering together. Can you make a minion from uh, 10 people? Um, this happens often in shiva houses where you're going to have some people in one room, some people in another room. Can all these people gather together and become part of a minion? And so the general rule is that when it comes to making a minion, it really depends why you're making a minion. So <clears throat> let me take it a step back. If you go up to most of the people, so we've got, a, we've got a number of people in the groups and I say, okay, what is a minion? 
So if I were to ask you all, my guess is most of you would say a minion is 10 men over bar mitzvah who can come together and you can daven with them. So that is not true. That's not true. That is true with regards to what makes a minion to, to daven in shul. To say Kedusha, to, to say Kaddish, to, to say Baruch, or to read from the Torah. But the, the concept of a minion is 10 people with the same level of obligation. So if there's something that is uh, an obligation for men and women alike, so then 10 people could be 5 men and 5 women. So, for example, there are certain mitzvot which men are obligated and women are not. So, for example, hearing a shofar. So women can hear a shofar and there's nothing wrong with women and most women make a point of listening to shofar and kol But they don't have the obligation. Men have to hear shofar. Women may hear shofar. Women, men have to put on tefillin. Women don't have to put on tefillin. They don't have to wear tzitzit. They don't have to shake a lulav. They don't have to send a sukkah. These are things that women do not have to do, but they may do. Now, what about, take another level, what about, like, there's a festival like Sukkot. Uh, it's not Sukkot, sorry, Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, the obligation of men and women is identical. So men are obligated to light Hanukkah candles, and women have the identical obligation to light Hanukkah candles. So, so there, a man can light for a woman, and a woman can light for a man. Wherever the obligation for men and women is the same, so firstly, either one can do the mitzvah to exempt the other. So for example, Kiddush on a Friday night. Someone says, Kiddush is the men's domain. Men must make Kiddush on a Friday night. And historically that was true because historically men were more literate than women. But from an obligation point of view, the men and women have the identical obligation to make Kiddush on a Friday night. So, for example, now this is a big, the father's gone away, so the father makes the Kiddush on every Friday night. Fantastic. Father's gone away on business and you have at home, you have the mother and you have the 12-year-old boy who's studying for his bar mitzvah. So who should make Kiddush? Now, I can tell you anecdotally that people come to me and say, oh, Rabbi, you'd be so proud. My husband was away this weekend, so my 12-year-old son made Kiddush. Now, that is a problem because the mother has an obligation to make Kiddush because she is a, um, she's, she's a, a woman who's obligated in mitzvot. The 12-year-old son does not have an obligation to uh, make Kiddush because he's not, he's not a bar mitzvah yet. So the mother should be making Kiddush for the family. Even such a case, just say the mother and father both are true and the father's lost his voice. So the mother should make Kiddush. The woman of the house should make Kiddush. They have the identical obligation. So she can make Kiddush for him. He can make Kiddush for her. On, uh, comes to Hanukkah candles. Um, if, if you light in one Hanukkah for the husband and wife together, which some have the custom to, in my own family, I light and tomorrow lights. But let's just say you've got one obliga- you've got one Hanukkah candle. So the woman could light, so the man can light. We have the identical obligation. So when you have the identical obligation, so men and women, since they are both obligated identically, um, how they fulfill the mitzvah will also be identical. So when it comes to making a minion, if the men and women have the same level of obligation, men and women can make the minion. So, for example, so we said Hanukkah, men and women have the same obligation. We said Kiddush on a Friday night. Purim. According to most opinions, men and women have the identical obligation to read the Megillah, which means when you want to read a Megillah Beminyan, you want to read it with a Minyan, and there's a value in reading with a Minyan because there are certain blessings that can be said with a Minyan that you can't be said without. So the Minyan could be made up of five men and five women. 
Okay, not many people do that. And if I were to try to do something like that, a kill up masada, my guess is, uh, you know, people would be uh, banging down the doors and angry. But theoretically, the idea is that men and women can join together to make a minion. But it's only certain kinds of minion where men and women's level of obligation is identical. Okay, so that's step one. Step two, so what is it? So to make a minion, what is the purpose of it? So the purpose of it can be for one of two reasons. One is that it creates a new entity that nine people praying by themselves or doing something by themselves um, are nine individuals. But by making 10, you create a new entity that could not, that something that could be done with this new entity could not be done beforehand. So for example, um, if we have nine people in shul, and, and one of them is trying to say Kaddish. They've got Yotza, they want to say Kaddish. You can't say Kaddish because there's no community there. There's only nine people. And you can't say Kedusha, and you can't say Baruch, and you can't do repetition. You can't do any of the stuff. Why? Because there's no Tzibur. There's no community. There's only nine people. So when the 10th person comes here, our uh, transformation goes. So you could have had the nine biggest rabbis in the world, and one... Uh, ignoramus illiterate Jew walks in and now you've moved from being non-individuals to a community and the community operates differently to non-individuals that's one element of it the other element has got to do with the fact that a community is a public arena it becomes public and some mitzvahs it's not a matter of a new entity it's about doing something publicly so I want this to be a public show of uh, something. So it's not a matter that it's a new entity that can do things that couldn't be done before. It could have been done before, but there's something very different between something as an individual for a few people and doing something as uh, in public. So now let's bring that back to show the practical differences in halacha. When it comes to reading from the Torah or, or, or saying Kaddish, you need a community. So therefore you need 10 people all with the same level of obligation, all standing in the same place and have to be in the same building. So if they have, <coughs> so if you have, just say we're at, um, at Shul, you've got one person standing in the library, one person standing in the foyer, one person standing in the Teperson, so that's not, you cannot make a community, you cannot make a Tzibu like that. So if you had three, three and four, you couldn't daven. You couldn't daven. So, Outside, potentially, because it's not a room, assuming they're not like on other sides of the field, they were within earshot of one another, so you could, uh, you could make a minion such a thing. But in different rooms of a house would be much more problematic, so you couldn't do something like that. But with regards to other elements, um, it has nothing to do with um, creating new entity. It's got to do with making something public. So, for example... If you've ever um, traveled overseas and come to shul or come to shul with someone who's just returned from overseas, they do something called benching gomel. So what is benching gomel? So this is an idea that is brought down. We actually read about it in a few parishes ago. That when people have um, experienced a certain salvation, we'll call it a salvation, that they've either been very sick and gotten better, traveled across the sea or across the desert, or have been released from captivity. Those are the four cases that the Talmud, that the Gemara brings out. 
that such a person needs to, in the times of the temple, would bring a thanksgiving offering to thank Hashem for bringing them out of this precarious situation. But we don't have that anymore. So what we do is we call someone up to the Torah and we get them to bench Gomo. Bench Gomo is to make the blessing. So benching Gomo usually we do with the reading of the Torah. But I can't, uh, there's no minion at the moment. So can I put it on Zoom? Can I get uh, nine of my friends um, on Zoom at the same time? So yeah, we've got, we've, got a, we've got a minion of Zoomers here. So I, so I want to bench Gomo. Can I bench Gomo on Zoom? So... If we look at it, no, it's, it's, it's part of davening, it's part of a community. You need to do it like that. So the one says, no, you can't do it. You have to do it in shul. And so you wait until we can get back into shul. And then you can uh, bench gomo. But if you say, no, that's not what benching gomo is. Benching gomo is thanking Hashem in front of, a com- in, front of in, in the public. You need 10 people to be able to hear you thanking Hashem for saving you. And if that's the case, so what difference does it make if they're standing in front of you under the same roof or they're sitting listening on computers? They're all hearing me in real time say, thank you, Hashem, of allowing me to get through this difficult situation. So, so to take this now and all bring it into the, the practical halachic uh, corona situation. So can we make minyanim? No, we can't make minyanim. So you can't do a minyan on Zoom. You can't say Kaddish on Zoom. You can't uh, read, read the Torah on Zoom. None of this works. But things that are to thank Hashem, so to bench Gomel, so if someone is, and maybe there's someone on the call who's even in such a situation that they, they've been through, they had a, had a car accident or they've been ill, someone's recovered from Corona or something else, so you could potentially bench Gomel here on Zoom. And it's considered benching Gomel, why? Because it is in a community setting in that it is, there is a public audience that is here listening to it. Okay. So, so this has been a very long-winded way of answering ostensibly what was a very quite simple question, was how do you do a pidyon ben? So pidyon ben is not in need of a minion of either form. In fact, uh, and, and the, I suppose the reason I got into that was this idea of, well, if you need a minion, you've got to understand what the purpose of a minion is. So for the pidyon, so the same as a bris doesn't need a minion, a pidyon ben doesn't do a minion. But can you do a, a, a pidyon over Zoom? So the problem with doing a pidyon over Zoom is he said you've got to give the Kohen coins. So there's no way of transferring coins uh, to the Kohen. Even if you were to do a wire transfer and the like, halachically, by Torah law, there needs to be an acquisition done. So that aspect could not be done. So how would you do it? You'd have to get the Kohen to stand outside the front door. You go, you leave the coins there, you stand on the inside, he's on the outside, he picks up the coins, and then he does the whole process. So in essence, that's how you would do something like... Um, um, all right <coughs> all right next question is one which is uh, unfortunately very relevant um, for our community as well and, and that's uh, missing bar mitzvahs so there is a question coming like okay we have missed eight nine parishes I mean we, we stopped I think on parashat Fayaka, I think Kitisa Kitisa about there, so we, we've like missed like eight, nine parishes, and let's just say there's no, so let's just say there's 12, 13 parishes to go, so we're going to come, that first Shabbos back in Shul, we're going to say, all right, we're going to be reading 13 parishes straight, so it's going to be, we're going to get, we're going to start Shul a little bit early, we start at seven, Creator Torah will be at a quarter to eight, and then Shul will finish at four in the afternoon, we're going to do like uh, four hours of, you know, eight hours of uh, laning, so um, I can't imagine there's going to be a huge attendance on that particular Shabbos. But uh, so, so what do we do? Do we have to do that? So there are different opinions going out there. 
by and large, the answer is no. We will not uh, have to repeat. We'll just pick it up. Even if it goes all the way, chas v'shalom, to Simchat Torah. So imagine, gets to Simchat Torah. We're going to have this big celebration of finishing the Torah. But we haven't finished the Torah. We haven't read half of it. doesn't matter. We'll still do Simchat Torah. Because somewhere in the world, someone's read the Torah on the Shabbos. There's, there's, there's some family in Williamsburg who's got uh, nine sons. Yeah? So they, they got a minion at home every week. Someone's reading the Torah. But what about the Bar Mitzvah boy? So Bar Mitzvah boy has got his parasha this week. This kid's been practicing his little tochus off for the last uh, eight months. And now he's not going to be able to read his Aftoras. He said, oh, don't worry. So in three months time, we'll go back to Shul. So in three months time, we go back to Shul, but the kid hasn't practiced three. Well, we're going to make this kid practice this, uh, this whole, um, do a whole nother mafti, a whole nother Aftorah. What, what are we going to do with this kid? Okay, so, so let me uh, give an interesting... Uh, Background on uh, reading of the Torah, just to understand how the Torah reading works. So I remember a number of years ago when we uh, restructured the Bar Mitzvah program, um, I had many angry, so I said to the way that I wanted to run the program was that we would have the kids read a lot more of the Torah, would scrap the Maftir and Haftarah, they'd read a lot more of the Torah and then they'd lead the service, they'd lead Kabbalah Shabbat on Friday night and Shabbat morning, whatever they were able to do. Saying so, I got a lot of uh, usually not the not the parents but the grandparents the grandfathers more often ah oh, my son's got to do the my grandson's got to do the mafti and haftorah I did the mafti and haftorah my son did, everyone's going to do maf, we got to do mafti and haftorah now everyone thought as uh, may, perhaps many of you thought that mafti and haftorah were very very important parts of the Torah and that's why we give it to the bar mitzvah boy now the reality is is mafti and haftorah are the least important parts of the bar mitzvah of the service and that's why we give it to the bar mitzvah boy yep so just to, to appreciate we don't give them the important parts of the service we give them the least important parts of the service and why is that because they're the least competent people on the bimba i mean you've got uh, you've got your your laner who does his laning for if not for a living he's a very competent laner you got the cousin who gets paid to daven you know like so what are you going to give this bar mitzvah boy who's got a broken voice and uh, you know, is, uh, been, doesn't really know what he's doing, pronounces half the words wrong, whatever. So what did you give him the part that if he messes up, it's not the end of the world? So what are the parts of the service that if they mess up, it's not the end of the world? Ah, that's the maftir and haftorah. Okay? So everyone thinks it's so important. It's, not, it's the least important thing. Of the world. In fact, in Israel, um, there are a number of customs. Some have spread to Australia, not all of them. So for example... Um, Anim's Mirot. So Anim's Mirot is, is the holiest prayer on, uh, on a Shabbat morning. It is, it is, it's a mystical Zohar Dika prayer. It's a very, very uh, holy prayer. And we don't want people um, to mess it up. So in, in, in many places around the world, they don't say Anim's Mirot except for Yom Kippur. That's the only time they say it because it is such a holy prayer. So what happens in communities? It becomes this uh, free fall. You know, get you ready for the Kiddush, so no one's really paying attention at that point in time. And uh, everyone just sings along. It's not really taken that seriously. So what happens is in, in, in Israel, they get kids that are under Bar Mitzvah to say it. So why do they take so, so they show that we're not taking it seriously. That it, it's it almost making a mockery that because it is such a holy prayer, we're just going to give kids to say because we, now we acknowledge the fact that we don't know what's going on. Same with Kabbalat Shabbat. In many places around the world, kids under Bar Mitzvah say Kabbalat Shabbat for the exact same ring. These are not important prayers. But let's get back to our Mafti Haftorah. 
So what is the, the, the Haftorah? So during the times of Roman occupation, when the Romans occupied Judea, um, they, they prohibited public Torah reading. So the rabbis of the time developed a reading a portion from the prophets. So what's from the Nevi'im, from the, the, the Na part of the Tanakh. And the goal is that this would somehow connect to whatever the weekly parsha would have been. So you go through the Maftir, you go through the Haftorah, and the Haftorah is always somehow connected either to the parsha itself. So, for example, um, two weeks ago we read about the four lepers that were wandering outside the gates of Jerusalem, and the Haftorah and, and the parsha that week was talking about this disease of leprosy of Tzerat. Okay, so that was the connection. So the Haftorah is always connected either to the to the the parsha of the week or to the theme of the time. So, for example, on Rosh Chodesh, uh, you read about Rosh Chodesh, even though it's not the parsha of the week. On 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 um, on uh, the, the the four uh, special Shabbatot, you know, on Zachor, you read about remembering Amalek before Purim, even though it's not related to the parsha of the week, which is Titzavah, which talks about the clothes of the Kohanim. So that's what the Haftorah was. Now, when the decrees of the Romans were repealed, and now we can read the Torah again, the question was, well, what are we going to do with this Haftorah thing we do? Are we going to scrap it or are we going to keep it? So I said, okay, we'll keep it. We'll keep the, the minhag. We'll keep this beautiful minhag of reading the Haftorah, and that was great. So every Shabbos morning, you get seven aliyahs, and, and then you get the Haftorah. Now, the problem is no one wanted the Haftorah. Because the Haftorah is like a second-rate uh, aliyah. Because you get the uh, reading from the Torah, which is written by Hashem. This is a very uh, holy book. So you're going to read from the Torah. And then Nebuch Krebs is going to do the Haftorah. He doesn't even get to read from the Torah. He gets to read from the, from the, from the prophets. So people didn't want the Haftorah. It was a disgrace. So what the Rabbis Institute is, is we're going to make an extra Torah reading. And the extra Torah reading is going to be just a repetition of what we've already read. It's not important, but it's just to give a little bit of cover, a little bit of respect to the guys doing the Haftorah. And that was called the Maftir. So the word Mafti Haftorah is actually the same word. It's different conjugations of the word Haftorah. And it's like the end part. So you would have uh, a month ago, Pesach. So if you remember the, the uh, question of the wise son. So the wise son says, what are these chukimu mishpatim, Hashem, Hashem, Elokeichem, Tzivetchem? Why are these all things? So he says, so you should answer him, she'eim maftirim achara Pesach afikomen. Okay, so you should not maftir after the Pesach afikomen. You shouldn't finish off after you've eaten the Passover by having dessert. So the word maftir is to finish off. So the maftir became the finishing off part. It was a repetition of the last part of the reading. And the only reason we did it was to give cover, to give honor to the guy who was going to get the Haftorah. Okay? So whoever gets the Haftorah always is the one who's caught up for the last reading of the, of the Torah, the Maftir. Okay? So you have seven aliyahs. Then you get the guy who's get, the, who's get caught up for the Maftir. And then we go into the Haftorah. So, okay, so that's the background before this, how this whole thing works. Now, what about a Bar Mitzvah boy? So what is the purpose of the Maftir? So the answer is, it's just to give honor to the guy who's going to get the Torah. So what the Rabbanim have said is, this is what we'll do. When uh, little Bobby's Bar Mitzvah comes, so Bobby's Bar Mitzvah was in Parshat Vayikra. And now he comes to Shum Parshat Bamidbar. So what are we going to do? So we're going to, Parshat Bamidbar, we're going to get the seven aliyahs of Parshat Bamidbar. 
Then we're going to call Bobby up for Maftir. And what's Maftir going to be? Maftir is going to be what he read in Vayikra. His, what his Bar Mitzvah Pasha was supposed to be. So we'll take it all the way back there. We'll read that Maftir for the day. And then we will go and let him read the Haftorah for Vayikra that he would have done anyway. Because, again, the Maftir and Haftorah are not important. You know, not impo- they're not as important as the Torah reading. And the connection is less stringent. And therefore, to allow this Bar Mitzvah boy to be able to be part of the Bar Mitzvah and to do it, so that's how you could uh, sort of get around it. This was a unique, this is a psych that's come out from, uh, from Yeshiva University, Rav, uh, Rav uh, Herschel Shech, that was uh, quite revolutionary because we, we don't really think in those ways. We always think in the fact that if this is the way it's done, this is the way it has to be done. But that's why, like I started with this whole introduction between the difference between Torah law, rabbinic law, and custom, is these are all customs we're talking about. And customs are great when, they, when, you, when, you, when life's normal. But when life's not normal, and I dare I say that we are living in a very abnormal era, so when life's not normal, so then there are other ways of getting around these different issues and how we do this. So this is how um, a lot of maftiyas and haftoras and how we're going to go around with them. All right. All right, the next one I want to talk about is uh, a yacht site. So how does a person commemorate a yacht site? And I'm going to just expand a little bit to, to include a, um, a, uh, uh, not a, a Yisko. So I just want to, I'm going to do a bit of a share screen here because I want to read it straight out of Rav Herschel Schechter's uh, actual notes. So hopefully everyone can see this. So Rav Herschel Schechter is... One of the foremost rabbinic uh, authorities in the world today is based out of uh, Yeshiva University in, up in uh, Crown Heights, not Crown Heights, in uh, Washington Heights up in New York. And he, this is one of those responses he wrote. So I'll just read. During these times when we are unable to gather in shul, it is important to know that Yisqor may be recited without a minion. However, it is even more important to understand and remember that the main function of the Yisko recitation is to serve as a context in which to pledge charity in the merit of a deceased loved ones. All right, I'm going to just end it over there. What Rav Shechta is saying here, and this, uh, hopefully you've heard me say this off the bimmer time and time again, is that when you get a yacht site or you have Yisko, the idea isn't to mention your late whoever's name in shul. That isn't the important thing. So there's a lot of hocus pocus that's sort of like mysticism that's sort of crept into the into Jewish liturgy where people feel that when the um, when the um, sorry, when the uh, rabbi when David Glazer gets up and says Mishabar, you know, Kelman Rachamim and remembers it Chaim Ben Shlomo and that somehow elevates the, the, the soul of Chaim Ben Shlomo. That is not true. And the same thing with Yisko, uh, with uh, Yotzat. That uh, Yotzat or Yisko, we say Yisko at Chaim Ben Shlomo. That doesn't elevate the soul. And neither does Kaddish in and of itself mystically elevate the soul. The, the idea of elevating the soul, both on Yisko's and Yotzat's, is that goodness comes into the world as a result of the influence of the person who's passed away. I'll say that again. Goodness, the world becomes a better place as a result of the influence of the deceased. So when one's relative has passed away, and now comes Yisko, and I say, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shem, please remember my late relative on account that I'm giving charity. That is the key to the Yisko, that I'm giving charity. And the way it works is that my late relative's honor, or in memory of them, I'm giving charity. This $5, $10, dollars $1,000 that I'm giving, I'm only giving it in their merit. So it's almost like they can reach from beyond the grave and give charity in this world. I'm acting as their proxy to give charity in this world. Good things are happening in this world because of my late relative. So what's happening is you don't, I get Krebs, do not get um, the merit. I don't get the mitzvah of giving tzedakah. My late relative gives, gets the tzedakah. They get the mitzvah. And that's what elevates the neshama. Because once we pass away, there's no more mitzvot. We can't do any mitzvot. But our relatives can do mitzvot on our behalf. So when we go, so when I'm giving tzedakah, their soul gets elevated. Now it's not only tzedakah. Tzedakah is the big one and that's why it is yiskor on your side. But any mitzvah that one does in honor of the deceased. So Kaddish, for example, what is Kaddish? So when we say, we are sanctifying Hashem's name. And since I must sanctify Hashem's name in honor of my late relative, they are getting the merit, they are getting the mitzvah of sanctifying Hashem's name. But I could do anything. If I did a kindness, if I, I said, I don't usually put on tefillin, but today I'm putting tefillin in honor of my, my late uh, great-grandfather, whatever the case might be. Each of these acts elevates the soul of the neshama, of the deceased, as a result of me doing the act. So when it comes to this, I can't say Kaddish. So it says, okay, so don't get upset by it. Like, because there's, you can, if the ultimate goal of Kaddish is to elevate the soul, you can still elevate the soul in as effective manner as you could have by saying Kaddish. In fact, dare I say that to elevate the soul by giving charity is going to be much greater elevation, much greater kindness that you can do to the deceased than saying Kaddish by nine people who are answering words. There's a good chance that none of them understand what they say. So, so this idea of both Yiskor and, and Yotzats and the like, the idea is to bring goodness in the world in the merit of the person that has passed away rather than it being a... Um, um, rather than it being something that ordinarily uh, wouldn't be done. So it has to be something that you wouldn't do otherwise. So if you always give, uh, I don't know, just say you put uh, you put $5 in your uh, your KM Cares Sadaka box every Friday. So fantastic. So, But you can't give that $5. You have to now give an extra $5. And the extra $5 is in honor of your relative. So that's how we um, do the yacht sites. And that's how we do the uh, Yisko. All right. I've specifically... Uh, uh, limited my comments this evening to areas of davening and mitzvah observance. I haven't gone into the medical halachas, which I did definitely do um, a while, you know, when I was still in quarantine. We, we dealt with a number of those different halachot. But uh, that being said, I just, I, I'm going to invite anyone, if you'd like to, you can go on. At the bottom of your screens is a little chat box there. And if anyone has specific questions, I, I would happily unmute you all, but it just tends to be a bit of a balagan when I mute you. If you would like to unmute yourself, you can unmute yourself. Yeah, you can unmute yourself. So if anyone would like to ask questions, please unmute yourself and ask a question. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I will, I will stay silent for now. Rob Micha here. Hi, Micha. If you decided to have a lunch date on Zoom, with a couple of mates, and you all ate bread, would you make a Zimun together? So, um, 
It's a good question. So the question over there is to Zimun when we say Rabotai Nebarech, what is that? Is that creating a new entity? So if we use the same model as we did with the davening, is it the same that you need uh, two other people to answer? So it's the same as uh, Bench and Gormel. Or is it the same as a minion that you actually need to create a new entity? Um, my, if I recall, I did read this somewhere, but uh, it's, it's, it's actually somewhere in between that you don't have to be in the same room, but you do have to be within earshot of one another. Um, so it would be, um, uh, I'm pretty sure you can't do it on Zoom. It has to be, the whole idea is that you're eating together. So for example, um, I remember in Yeshiva, you'd have two people eating, or let's say, you know, two people eating, and then a third person would come and you'd want to zaman, but he hadn't eaten with you. So he has to eat with you. The whole idea is that you're all eating together. And I don't think that Zoom um, would facilitate that. I stand corrected. It's a, this is uncharted territory for many of us. So I don't think it would work for uh, Zoom. Any other questions? All right. No? No questions? All right. I'll, I'll tell one interesting anecdote. Um which uh, sort of took place uh, a few weeks ago. So there's, um, so when we sell our chametz, the whole idea of the selling chametz to a non-Jew for Pesach is that it doesn't belong to us over Pesach. So it's supposed to be a legitimate sale. It's not supposed to be what we call arama, sort of like trying to get around the rules. So when you sell your chametz, you want to, um, you want it actually to belong to the non-Jew. So the best way of knowing this is if the non-Jew were to actually come up and say, where's your chametz? I want to take some. You would happily give it to them. That would be the, um, the idea. Okay? So that's how it's supposed to be. Now, it's never happened, to the best of my knowledge, that a non-Jew has ever come along and asked for uh, chametz. But uh, potentially that's uh, what, uh, you know, what would uh, happen. Now, there are certain circumstances where um, similar concepts exist. So, for example... Around Pesach, there was this big question about um, when you purchase a new glass or metal uh, cooking utensil or your dish or something, you need, to, you need to take it to the mikvah. You need to toivel it in the mikvah. Now, this has nothing to do with kashrut. It has to do with ownership. And, uh, and when you own it, uh, when, you, when you're taking something ownership from non-Jewish ownership to Jewish ownership, you've got to take it to the mikvah. Now, it wasn't feasible to go. The mikvahs have all been closed some time now so you can't take it to the mikvah so what are your options so there are a few different options one option is to um to take it to the sea and tovel it in the sea the sea is a kosher mikvah so that's one option second option is to actually you don't own it it still belongs to non-jews and you just borrow it for a period of time now that that is a something that is used all the time at uh by the by the caterers of sydney so every caterer in Sydney, when they do an event at uh, whatever club they do it at, they use the glasses of the, of the club. They don't use their own glasses. So they have their own plates and knives and forks and that, but glasses, since glasses are not a problem from a kashrut point of view, and ordinarily if you buy a glass, you've got to toil it, but since these glasses belong to whatever restaurant it is or whatever club it is, and I'm just using it for the evening, they don't need to be toiled. Okay, So that's the second one. The third case, which is a bit more halachically complex, but it is a case where I was caught, I, I stand and I get a number, I get three Jews around me, 
and I and I take my utensil and I say, this utensil. Well, if if a utensil does is ownerless, so we said it's. To, you need to toil something that has gone from the possession of a non-Jew to possession of a Jew. So it belonged to uh, the local uh, shop that was owned by non-Jews, and now it's become mine and some transferring ownership. But if there's no transfer of ownership, you don't need to toil it. So how do we have something that has no ownership? So what I do is I take my, uh, so I've got this brand new glass bowl. And this glass bowl was standing on the side of the street ready for council pickup. So when you put your stuff on the street corner for council pickup, you have been mafkirit, meaning you, you've made it ownerless. So my guess is we've all had stuff on the street corner and there's a guy who comes past in his car and he gets out and he snoops around your trash and he picks up one or two things and off he goes. All right, we've all had that. Maybe some of us have done that, but okay, we get that whole uh, idea. So once you put it on the street corner, you have said it's ownerless. It's hefka. Anyone can come and take. You want to come take my junk? It's junk. So if, if you put a salad bowl on your street corner and I come and pick up the salad bowl, I don't need a toy it because even though you used to own it, once you put it on the street corner, it's ownerless. So it's not a transfer of ownership because I never had an owner to begin with. Okay. I hope you're all following me. This is getting a little bit halakhically complex. Now, I've got a bowl that I've purchased. I, 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 I can't find a non-Jew to give it to and borrow and I can't get to the sea or whatever. So what I do, so this is what I do. I get three other Jews and I put this on the ground and I look to um, the, uh, the Jews and I say, the two of you are witnesses that I have made this bowl completely ownership. Anyone who wants to take this bowl can take this bowl. And now there's this other guy in front of me and he looks at the bowl and I look at the bowl and he says, no, nah, I'm not interested. He walks away. So I say, all right, I'll take the bowl. So I pick the bowl and I go home. Since the bowl never had an owner, because um, I had already rendered it ownerless, anyone could come and pick it up. I had two witnesses to see that. It was ownerless. I pick it up, take it home. I don't need to toil it. All right, I hope that uh, I can see some of you finding that uh, this uh, legalistic gymnastics quite funny. Now, listen to this story. So I, had a, I, I went Erev Pesach. I needed to get some uh, utensils. And I'll be honest, I wasn't completely certain of how I was going to do this. So I bought them with the intent to go to the beach. And then I looked at the time, there was no chance I was going to go to the beach. So I'm thinking, I was in the center. I was like, do I know any non-Jews here who I could ask to give it to them and then borrow it back? So like, I just did, I looked around the center. I thought there must be someone I know here that I know I'm the rabbi. Like I often use my, my cleaner to do it with these sort of things. But like, I didn't have anyone in the center that I felt that I could just go up to them and say, hi, like, I'd have to go up and say, hi, I'm the rabbi. I'm just going to explain this very complex halachic concept to you. Can I give you my, 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 my utensil and then can I borrow it back? But you, you know, just understand the shenanigans. So I couldn't do, so I didn't have that. So I thought, hold on a second. It's Erev Pesach at the center. The Jews everywhere. Fantastic. So I go and I say, all right, now again, I, I did this all wrong, so it didn't work anyway. But my idea is I got some people and I said, all right, I just want to explain to what I need to do. Um, I've just bought this thing and I, and, and I need to toivel it, but I can't toivel it because it's, um, it's uh, I can't get the mikvah, I can't do it. So what I want to do, there's another way called rendering it ownership. I'm going to mafkir it. So I'm going to render it ownership, ownerless, and I put it down on the floor. And if anyone wants to take it, they can take it. And if they don't take it, I'll take it back and I won't have to toivel it. 
So I thought, this is fantastic. So I said, all right. So here, and I put it on the floor in the middle of the center. I said, all right, I am mafkir it. So the person looks at me, says, I'll take it, picks it up and takes it home. <laughs> so that was the end of my pot. So, so that was the end of my, uh, my story. Now, interesting, just on this particular question, so I was asked to Rav, uh, Rav Shechter, Rav Shechter said you could do that over Zoom. So potentially I could say, all right, everyone Zoom, I've got on my front, uh, on, on the top of my driveway, I've just been mafkir, I've just made ownerless a big pot. It's going to be there for the next half hour. If anyone wants to, you can come get it. And assuming in half an hour no one gets it, I'll bring it back in and I don't have to toggle it. So he says you can do that over Zoom because, again, as long as it's publicly known that that's the case. I don't have a pot there, so please don't come. But I pro- should probably tell you what my address is, yeah, if I'm going uh, to do it. So I'm not sure you're going to know where I live. All right. Uh, I see Seymour Ingrid. Do you have a question? Hi, Seymour. So, just to get back to the Mitzvah boy thing, I mean, irrespective of whether the Mitzvah boy gets an Aliyah or not, it's still Bar Mitzvah. So, technically, he doesn't have to get an Aliyah. So, I mean, so let's just say this COVID situation goes on for six months or a year. I mean, I know it's a nice thing to market in shul, but technically, he doesn't really have to get an Aliyah, does he? So, the idea of Bar Mitzvah is, as you correctly said, you know, when you, you often hear these cases, oh, you know, we went to the court cell and, you know, I met this person and he was 80 and he'd never had a bar mitzvah. So that, that, that's not true. The word bar mitzvah is like, it's like saying that if a person never had their 18th, they never became legally able to drink. You know, so if a person, he says, you know, he's, he's 75 and he never had an 18th. It's like, no, you have to have an 18th. If you became 75, you had to have an 18th. And the day you turn 18 is the day you can legally drink. The fact that you never had a drink for X amount of years doesn't mean that it you never, never happened. Same with the bar mitzvah. The day you turn 13, the mitzvah, you are now a bar mitzvah. It doesn't matter that you never got caught up to the Torah. So we try that at the first opportunity that a person who's now obligated in mitzvahs, that they do the mitzvah. We, this concept of, um, you know, the first opportunity to do a mitzvah, you should do it. And we have that exists in a number of different areas of halakha. But you want to do it as soon as possible. But uh, even if you don't do it, you're still obligated. So the day the boy turns 13, he has to put on, and he's obligated to put on talus, tefillin, tzitzit, all of these things. These are, these are obligations. They're no longer optional. They're not for education anymore. If it falls uh, area of Yom Kippur, he has to fast at Yom Kippur. So you're 100% right. So the, where, um, where I was referring to is really... You know, having Rachmanus on the family or having Rachmanus on the boy who's put so much preparation in. So I suppose we could always say to him, listen, uh, Vayikra comes next year as well. So next year, Vayikra, you get to do the lading. But the question is, do we have to do that or could we do something a little bit sooner? Now, that's, that's sort of where it is. But you understand, right? All right. Any other questions, comments, reactions? Well... Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's nice to have such a big crowd um, from all over, from north, from south, from east, from Melbourne. Nice to see uh, people joining us. Please, tomorrow night, uh, my goal is actually that this show should be a little bit shorter. I um, just got a little bit carried away this evening. But tomorrow night, so Monday night is going to be halacha. Next week will be probably unrelated to corona. But tomorrow night, we also from 7 to uh, hopefully about 7.30, we're going to start going through the big questions of Judaism. Uh, tomorrow we're going to ask the question of why Hashem would make something like this happen. 
Um, and then we're going to go into a whole bunch of other questions um, that are along the philosophical line. So Monday night's halacha, Tuesday night's uh, philosophy. Um, I hope you all can join us. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Stay safe. And I look forward to seeing you then. All the best. Laila Tov.